Another edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel, where we try our best to talk about everything and anything cannabis, seeing if we can give you enough information so that as you're trying to navigate the space out there, and every single state is different, we know that, but as you're trying to navigate, I want to give you some information so that you make good choices for you and your family. When you walk into a dispensary or you walk into some of these adult use I'm going to call them dispensary or facilities. I want to make sure that you get enough information that you can make a good, discernible, different, different kind of a decision for you and your family. So I'm glad that we're, we're doing this and I'm glad you tuned in today. And today we're really, really, really lucky. We're on location in Florida, Miami, Florida, uh, the home of this weekend Super Bowl <laughs> and, uh, have an opportunity to talk with a research professional with a PhD focused in natural products, chemistry and pharmaco, pharmaco, pharmacology. Pharmacology. Hmm. He's an experienced analytical and biological, biological, bioanalytical chemist. Dr. Andrew Hall is a chief scientific officer and partner in Green Scientific Labs. Thanks so much for joining us today, sir. Thank you for having me, Montel. Absolutely. You know, you got quite a resume for a person in the cannabis space. What did you do before you got in cannabis? Um, so really my background is, um, you know, I got a biology and a chemistry degree. After that, I went on to a uh, pharma company, uh, making, uh, controlled substances. Okay. Um, from there I re- went on to, uh, grad school where I went on to get my PhD in natural products chemistry. Um, ultimately that's the study of drugs that come from natural sources. Mm-hmm. Um, about 70% of drugs originated from a natural source at one point. Sure. Um, so that, that really opened my eyes to where drugs come from and, um, you know, how plant-based medicine and even marine organisms can really make a difference in people's lives. Um, after that, learning a little more about that, I wound up moving back up to Massachusetts to do a lot of preclinical drug development to um, everything. Again, working for a pharma company? Um, uh a contract research organization. Okay. So for what pharmaceutical companies do is they have a big data pack submissions that you need in order to, before you can go into a human, uh, which shows the safety of the products, um, the toxicology, whether or not they can mutate things. Um, so I ran studies that were associated with those products. So you can then submit to the FDA and then these pharma companies can move forward and um, actually investigate further in humans and show its efficacy and safety um, from there. Um, looking, you know, with my, my love of, you know, my own journey in cannabis in general, um, I saw a big need for kind of legitimizing the cannabis scape to where it needed to be. Um, well, but now let me ask you a question, because this, this is great that you just explained this. You know, the U.S. government has been researching cannabis in the United States and outside of the United States for now over 40 years. Mm-hmm. Does it really take 40 years to do this? Or have we just been, been I'm to say it honestly, I've just been bullshitting the public telling them that we've been doing research at the University of Mississippi when we really haven't been doing anything? Um, I think it's a balance between what the government sets up for traditional drugs and uh, the safety pathways and the regulations that you have for all these things. So I don't think a lot of the industry has had the ability to set up the infrastructure to really study someone's specific formulation or manufacturing techniques. I'm just talking about just studying the plant. 
You know, there's been a program in place since the first Papa Bush was president of the United States. You know, and you know this as well as I do, that we've had an, a, a program in place where we have the, the you know, the um, Compassionate Care uh, Act that the first President Bush put in place where he established you know, the research facility at the University of Mississippi. We have been growing marijuana, testing marijuana for over 40 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, there are people in this. I, I, I'm one of them that and I'm just completely baffled that my taxpayer dollars have gone out every single year, been authorized in a budget every single year. And we are just now getting to a place where we're actually doing valid research. It took the private sector to step in and actually, I mean, remember, you know, you know this as well as I do that, that, you know, the U.S. government uh, did a considerable amount of funding of Raphael Meshulam in Israel. That was 30 years ago. I totally agree. But I think the translation that happens with government research, you know, especially at the university level, it's very fundamental. Mm-hmm. So I think you hit on a key point that now that uh, private funding is actually coming in, you're able to now study uh, people specific products. Um, you know, as a natural products chemist, um, you know, we, we study all the chemistry. So when you look at cannabis in general, there's over 160 cannabinoids um, and a, hun- a bunch of other terpenes and o- other chemistry that all plays a role in every user's experience. And that's another that's one area that that, again, continues even now. Here we are in, you know, 2020 and you can literally go up online right now and read five different Research papers suggesting that we have 66, 150, 160 plus cannabinoids. Nobody agrees. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm completely blown away by the fact that, you know, I've been doing a lot of speaking in the last couple of years and, and saying to people that, you know, we know for a fact that there are well over 160 cannabinoids and phytocannabinoids. We know that. And I've had somebody stand up in the back of a room and raise their hands. No, Montel, you're not right. There's only 67. I feel like saying, shut up. Yeah. You know, I just don't get it. Why? Why is there such an inconsistency, even with those who are involved? And you guys are the researchers and, and scientists are, you know, some of the smartest people on this planet. Why can't we get that group to even guarantee uh, to agree. Well, I totally agree with you. I think when you even talk about testing standards and um, the scientists that are actually getting together, we're now just forming these committees and getting the right people together um, with the right vision of creating these standardized medicines and actually understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we now have the Journal of Endocannabinoid Medicine um, where researchers feel like they're publishing and it's actually impactful research for the people that's visible. Um, you know, so I think... The right people are finally entering. Um, the right channels are now being opened for people to actually study their products, um, how they're working. And um, you were re- really trying to tailor fit disease states to these plants and and what's going on. Sure. Um, you know, I think this plan is, is beautiful in general, um, you know, from a natural product standpoint. You and that's what, that's what brought you from the general pharmaceutical industry over to this industry, right? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge and it's, you know, you take the same varietal, it'll actually produce different chemistry depending on both the region, uh, depending on how they cultivate, as well how as they extract variations. Exactly. Right. Um, you know, and it becomes a challenge, I think, from a drug perspective, you know, how do you make a consistent product if everybody's doing something differently? Right. You know, and, and I think that's why this regulatory pathway that, you know, certain states are setting up 
um, is really being able to allow, um, you know, consumers like me um, and well, patients like me, um, you know, moving forward and really being able to access the same product that'll give you the same user experience over and over again. Okay. Uh, you know, and it's. It, I mean, look, I'm looking back in history, though, you know, let's go back to, you know, pre 1900, 1930, 31, when, you know, we passed the Marijuana Tax Act. I mean, if we go pre that, people were using cannabinoids and cannabis on a regular basis. They were using hemp on a regular basis. It was and, the number one drug. And that, there was no, I, I don't I don't want to say it this way, but, you know, nobody really questioned whether or not they had to get the exact same experience from for hundreds of years from the plant that they were consuming, whether they be eating it, whether they were, you know, eating the seeds for protein by itself. You know, we were getting benefits from this plant way back before I feel like, you know, we started down the path of trying to over-science this. I totally agree with you. I mean, I think in, in general, ancient Chinese medicine, all, all the plants at, out there have really had certain beneficial effects. And I think us as science, I think you might have been naive towards the 30s and moving forward of actually understanding that these single compounds can have a drug effect, but um, which has now pushed the pharmaceutical industry as big as it has been. Um, but now I think you see everyone as going organic, going, um, you know, maybe not taking pharmaceuticals and adjusting their diets. And it's the same right. thing for cannabis. And it's, I, I think you need to set up a, a program to regulate, to eliminate, um, you know, illegal, illicit cannabis because we've seen people die. Right. Um, and that's been because of some of the, the unscrupulous people who have gotten into business trying to see if they can, you know, stretch a product longer, wider than it should be stretched. Yeah. So if they just left the plant alone, we probably yeah. would not have had those issues. Exactly. I totally right. agree. It's it's people that are trying to stretch the plant, make more margins, but not really look at it from a, you know, a health and safety standpoint. And that's why you need some framework. But do we need necessarily full clinical trials on this stuff? No, because all you need to know is it's safe right. at that point. It's not about maybe doing that effect. I think it's up to you and I as the consumer to decide whether or not it's having the effect and being sure. beneficial to our life. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand testing to make sure that you get all the deleterious components out, all the things that could do damage that are literally added to the plant, you know, rather than go after trying to micro manage the plant itself. The plant itself has been given, you know, to mankind for now well over 5,000 years, at least the way we've had it written. So uh, clearly there's not much wrong with the plant as long as you don't just start stepping in and screwing around with it. There's very little low to no toxicological effects. I mean, you look at the only death associated with cannabis, and it was really related to aspergillus, a black mold. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, and that that's really where I think society and, you know, this not social experiment, but this regulatory framework of what these governments are setting up, it's it's really critical to, you know, prevent bad players from entering the market. And, and right. you see this in pharma companies and everywhere else. It's just there's a lot more documentation associated with it to prevent those things from happening. Right. So, so, okay, so let's back up a little go back a little bit. So you shifted over from, again, the, you know, the biopharma world 
and shifted in this, and that's what made you decide to, Did you? how long has your lab been in, in place? So I've been in the industry for a while. I've been mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, so we're doing some testing to, you know, for the same safety testing for Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also doing some preclinical work. So we're developing programs to actually study um, what I call the bioavailability. Um, so how, how much can get into your system, as well as some of those safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, I actually went out to California um, during the rollout of the different phases of testing. Um, but being Northern California, it's not my style. I, sure. I, I came down to uh, Florida, uh, mm-hmm. where I where I got my PhD, and uh, to do some research as well sure. at the university. Right. Um, but then with my partners, we are have now been in business um, about a year and a half now. Funny. So Green Scientific has been around about a year and a half. Yep. Here and in, and now are you trying to replicate this in other states? Um, you know, do it right. I, I right. think um, as an industry, from you hear about all this these issues with laboratories, right? right. Uh, the discontinuity. And even here in this state, I mean, I know that there are a bit, bit issues where people can take the same batch, but then again, it's not necessarily the same batch. Mm-hmm. I mean, because a lot of people think, you know, if I harvest this one, you know, grow cycle, bag it all up and send it to a laboratory, I've got the same product in the bag. You don't, correct? Nope, it's not. And that, that comes down to sampling issues, which is what... I think we're working through with the state um, as well as as protocols to make sure that it's a representative sample and then it actually is representative of what the end consumer is doing. Okay. Um, So, so, but then again, you'll have a representative sample go out to different labs in this state and come back with different results. Now, how the devil does that happen? So it kind of comes through multiple issues throughout throughout our system. Um, mo- more mature industries, more regulated industries. I wouldn't say more, yeah, more mature industries. Sure. Um, you know, you have certain regulatory bodies that audit your lab, make sure you document everything, and that you're running tests correctly. Um, this industry is at its infancy. Um, so that has allowed us to develop our own methods and validate them through a series of tests that are hundreds of thousands of dollars by the time you, you come to it at the end of the day um, to ver- verify that our tests are correct. Um, but that's all internal. Um, other industries have uh, USP, U.S. Pharmacopoeia, right. ASTM. Um, you know, and now our committees like ASTM D37 have now come together with the, the right scientists to now start developing um, the right standards. But the problem okay. when you put a lot of scientists into a room, uh, they tend to argue. Correct. Um, yeah. Just like government. Um, right. You know, so with that, that, that change of there, no standardization, you've created a systemic error that, you know, we are probably within plus or minus percent based on our, our methods. Now, internally, we have to calibrate our instruments and use different standards to verify these things are cross-checked. And it depends on, you know, just just rattle yeah. off the different ways that we actually test. We're using gas spectroscopy, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of different techniques. And right. I, what I, I call them orthogonal methods, uh, meaning multiple methods for mm-hmm. what you're doing. So you have gas chromatography you can use for um, residual solvents, terpene analysis, as well as um, you could use it for actually cannabinoid analysis. You have HPLC PDA, which we have for um, uh, potency analysis. However, you have secondary data that allows you to 
look at your data even further to actually uh, get more information about it. Okay. Um, you have uh, pesticides that you have to analyze for, and that's that's run through an LCMS um, instrument as well as a GCMS. Um, that that's key because some people try to sell you instruments that can do it all in one, and, that and they really can't. They really can't. Right. Um, as well as other uh, Headspace GCMSs that test for some of the other things, um, mm-hmm. as well as residual solvents and terpenes. And that's key that I have, uh, you know, FIDs, GCFIDs, as well as um, GCMSs, because not one instrument is better than the other. They all have their pros and cons right. uh, when you talk about a strictly science standpoint. So it's key with the amount of products that we have out there that we are really tailor-fitting our methods to what these products are as well. And this is part of the difficulty in, in establishing lab testing nationwide. I mean, you know, we go into all the different states that have now, you know, passed some sort of cannabis law. We let this plan go by. All the different states that have passed some form of cannabis law, then they say, okay, well, I think we ought to test this. But then they just throw their hands up in the air and say, okay, somebody step up and say, you've got a lab. Well, the person who has the lab has to go out and buy millions of dollars worth of equipment. If they don't, and they just buy one specific, one type of equipment, they're really not testing. I totally agree. But, I, I, you know, a laboratory, I think, is really, uh, you know, as a scientist, I think it's really built on your team and their knowledge of these instruments. So mm-hmm. um, I kind of hit on the point of laboratory roll-up strategies and people just buying labs. But if you don't have the right uh, personnel with the right experience for these products and testing, um, you know, it's, it's not useful. Um, you know, you can't have someone just graduate with a, uh, a degree and then know how to become an expert and run a laboratory. Um, it's a lot of sleepless nights and it's a lot of, um, you know, to be honest, arguing with clients over preventing bad products for going on or, um, educating them about, you know, what went wrong in the process, mm-hmm. uh, you know, crushing people's dreams at times, which is, you know, nothing that I like, but yeah, I mean, um, you have the ability to basically, you know, take tonnage of people's product and have them throw it away. Mm-hmm. It happens right? all the time. And, you know, and it's, you know, people crying. It's, it's not that you're really after. It's the end consumer to make sure that they're not going to die from vitamin E acetate, right. you know, all those situations. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but you see the right people coming in and really caring now, um, as opposed to, I think, what uh, California used to originally be with that rec market where um, it was naive people and not understanding the control processes and um, what it means to cultivate large scale via, um, you know, maybe what I had in my uh, dorm room closet, uh, sure. you know, up in Rhode Island. But I'm sorry, and, and basically cultivating it that way in smaller scale makes it a little easier to get consistency out of your product, correct? Much more consistency, but then even from a regulatory uh, standpoint, um, patient population, you know, it's, it's one person at risk as opposed to, you know, putting out, um, you know, some of these companies are making 3,600 liters of distillate at a time. Right. Um, you know, that's could be millions of people that could die. Right. Um, and that, that's really the hard part about scaling up and, you know, moving this industry in that movement, I see. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. 
My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about the the in-depth way we test. You know, I, I, let's say right now, you know, I find a dispenser or I find someone in here in Florida and I go buy a product. Am I going to see some sort of a state certificate or state, you know, license or something stamped on the outside of the package that tells me this is okay for me? So Florida actually on the 20th, they put in their emergency rules. So all the MMTCs are now actually testing for full compliance. Prior to that, they all were testing to compliance anyway, um, you know, through the right labs and, you know, seeing what's going on to work out their kinks. Um, you know, and that, that's the problem. How do you put the cart before the horns? Because uh, you have laboratories that need to, you know, they need to generate revenue. But then you also have, um, you know, uh, these growers that need to work out their process. It's not really that challenge, like that easy to do. Um, you know, so they've been really rolling out these laws and everyone's been getting in shape and really working together, but it's some of the most stringent, um, in the country. Um, and I'm very excited to actually see and be a part of this and, um, you know, work through these rules as we're going back and forth and, um, you know, trying to do things right. Um, you know, it's about good science and, and good data. That's, that's why I'm here. Uh, sure. That's why I put a lot at risk to right. uh, get here and sacrifice a lot. But, um, you know, it's really about working through these things to, um, you know, help everyone at the end of the day. Um, so, I mean, okay, so again, it, it maybe walk us through some of the, the easiest mistakes someone can make who is cultivating, you know, a, a hundred acres plot. What's the easiest mistake that they can make? And let's say it's all indoor. Yeah, it's not. Uh, I mean, skip the hunter. Let's get it down to, to twenty acres. It's hygiene protocols, really. I mean, it's um, it's really how you operate. Are you standardized processes, humidity controls? It's really understanding things that way. Um, humans are most likely going to contaminate the plant once you grow up in a clean operation. Mm-hmm. So it's making sure people scrub it, scrub in. They're wearing the right suits, the right cleaning protocols, mm-hmm. um, to make sure it makes its way all the way down. Um, you know, but it, it's not even just people messing up what, what you've seen and you know um up in california and, and you know down in florida um the state sprays for pesticides to control uh, mosquitoes these are aerial sprays or ditch sprays um this is carried on over um yeah. you know through the air to your regular food products but it's also carried on over through the air handling systems into um, certain grows as well so now you have uh, the state now also has testing requirements on products that are now going to fail based on their doing, um, you know, which is which which would have failed if you tested a grape or a peanut. Right. Exactly. Right. So it's all about figuring out how to set up a system because it's it's not perfect. You know, my mom's the only one that's ever said I'm perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about looking at the state and, and working together. But I think the state has to be at this defensive position because otherwise the bad players are just going to work all over them, you know, and it's, it's, you know, caused a slow rollout towards, you know, the end goal of all recreational and, you know, open access to everybody. Right. Um, relieve the barriers of people having to go to a doctor if they're ashamed or whatnot due to, um, you know, cultural reasons or whatnot. Um, you know, so it's, 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 it's really interesting in that respect. Sure. I mean, I, but I, I kind of, I go back, it's like, okay, if you go back in the sixties, you didn't hear the issues 
that you're hearing today. The 70s, we didn't hear about some of these issues that you're hearing about today. And yeah, I mean, you know, back I remember in the 70s, it was mostly Mexican weed, right? That people were bringing in the United States wrapped in newspapers that had lead, you know, uh, uh, ink in it. And people were smoking it and you didn't have people getting sick and nobody dying from some sort of a lung infection. Now, all of a sudden, we have product that's supposedly clean being grown in in facilities that are supposedly as clean as they can possibly be. And people are getting sick. Yeah. And I think it's really due to large scale scaling. You know, I think, you know, you talk about the fields, outdoor grows, it's a little bit different, but now it's, it's the scaling and the variety of products. I mean, you, you weren't back in the seventies going in and getting chocolates that were manufactured large, large scale or sodas or right. suppository or, um, I've seen some weird things, but, right, sure. um, you know, so that, that's, that's where people are getting getting these things from how are they extracting these products um mm -hmm. you have novices that used to just take butane bottles and the fact them. that we still have people out there actually using i've been i've been an advocate for trying to ban butane usage in this for the last since i started being an advocate in cannabis because i mean if i'm not going to walk outside and stick my mouth around the, the exhaust pipe of a car why am i going to suck that same thing into my lungs when i'm just i want to smoke something that's just as simple as marijuana and uh, yet, you know, and then somebody can tell me, well, it's it's only got 50 parts per billion. But really? That's it, it really or 50 parts per million. Really? Nah. Uh, do you really got to tell me that? Do you know that that's only 50 parts? What if it's 350 parts? And how do we know that 350 parts of butane sucked into my lungs, heated up, isn't going to do some sort of damage? One part. I think you just hit on a great point. It's that we don't know those things. You know, that's why people have rolled out with all these different craft or new product ideas that will generate a new revenue stream per se, but they're not evaluated. Right. Um, you know, a whole plant like we talked about in the beginning, you know, that it hasn't hurt anyone for thousands of years. Now, as people start developing all these products, I think that's really what this, these harms are coming from. It's maybe not evil people, but it's... Um, unintelligent people working sure, down that, sure, that sure. pathway. Uninformed. Just, uh, uninformed. That's right, a much better you way. Sure. Um, you know, developing these products and, you know, that that's what happens. You know, that honeycut situation, I don't think anyone maliciously did that. They just saw saw an opportunity and, ooh, these look similar. Let me just put them together. Right, um, right. You know. And, you know, you also I saw something that you said that, you know, uh, even when it comes to MCT, uh, a lot of people use a lot of MCT oil, especially as thinners and things. But MCT is isn't necessarily MCT, MCT. <laughs> so, you know, where did you get the MCT from? Where was it sourced from? How clean was it? Was it contaminated? And that's what we I work a lot with. So, um, you know, a lot of the clients I work with, the larger clients, we do a lot of the, what I call supply chain validation. So it's not just testing your end product, it's testing all your raw material to mitigate the situations and mitigate risks that you can throw away these things before you destroy your entire facility or bring in aspergillus from, you know, your, your milk cart or something. I think we must be right in the flight plan. Uh, just so you know, we are coming to you from, you know, uh, Southern Florida right now and sitting outside having a really good conversation. It's nice to be outside in nature. Uh, but go right back and finish what you were saying. Um, I was talking about supply chain validation, sure. but it's really making sure that you're not bringing in toxic products from the outside that you're going to add to it that will actually cause that end product to fail uh -huh. and, and cause issues. You know, so people used to buy 
like you said, MCT oil, MCT oil, MCT oil, but you get what you pay for. Right. Um, you know, so a lot of these people just buy the cheapest product and not realize that it is dirty or it's contaminated or that's the price. There's heavy metals present. Right. Um, you know, that's just the nature of things. The cheap plastic bottle capper that you have for your CBD product. Right. That's leached a ton of heavy metals in there. Correct. Um, you know, there's a reason why the FDA set up food grade products and food grade plastics and stuff is to help mitigate these issues that have already been seen in the nutraceutical and pharmaceutical world. Right. Right. Yeah. And but wouldn't you think that that's probably, you know, in the nutraceutical world, you know, that's really the world that this industry should kind of try their best to follow. I absolutely love that you say that. So the dietary supplements regulated by this uh, law called the Shea Law, um, and that's also kind of falls into something called grass, which is generally recognized as safe. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have a supplement um, or a dietary supplement uh, with a known concentration of, say, CBD in this scenario, right. um, you know, you have to put it through the right safety profile um, in order to get it, get it, uh, get it through and approved to make your claims. Um, so, but the problem is the nutraceutical world really hasn't gone down that pathway either. It's, it's, it's lacked a lot of oversight and a lot of regulations. Okay. So I think we will move down that pathway, but it's about, um, creating you know, a new, path. a new pathway and a way for people to actually study the pharmacology and actually look at their product specifically and, and show that they have a, a good traceable manufacturing process as well as their product mixed with this MCT oil versus this MCT oil will have that same effect. Okay. Um, and that that's the next step. But the problem with that Deshea law is that whole Epidolex with the pharma patenting mm -hmm. or the pharma of that CBD molecule. Yes. Because um, now you have um, conflicting laws and regulations right. uh, associated with it. So now, um, you know, that's why there's a lot of lawyers and things that are beyond my knowledge base uh, sure. that are trying to figure out how to move that pathway forward. Well, you know, let me ask you just, just a basic question. Out of, out of all the extraction processes that are out there, which one do you think will eventually rise to the top? You know, the wheat always rises above the chaff. So, you know, you have out there right now, we have uh, supercritical CO2, we have, you know, cryoethanol, we have, and there's still people out there, I'm telling you, in a lot of these markets out here, lying and still using butane. Mm -hmm. So out of those three, what, what would you look for for yourself as a consumer? So, I mean, first off, I think a lot of people are naive to CO2. Mm -hmm. uh, CO2, you're able to actually harvest out your terpenes, but post-processing, it's a very fatty mixture and you wind up using ethanol um, to now purify it even f further. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and those crude extracts are actually good for edibles and, you know, you wouldn't really need to refine it further, but then, you know, your distillate's clean, but... Um, for, if you look at some of the papers and the research that's out there and from my natural products background, it's when you, you take a mixture of compounds um, at different ratios, it'll have a different effect every time. So like part of what I would love to, what I'm, I'm working on uh, through the university is to study the, these actual different mixtures and ratios um, mm -hmm. to show how, it, how it's effects. So um, I think until we have an understanding of what those ratios and those chemistry profiles are with an effect, um, you know, if you form distillate, you formed a pure compound, you formed an API, a drug, right. you know, it's not a whole plant uh, mixture. Right. So um, I went around in a lot of different directions, but it really just depends on that end process. And then if you're gonna make say fresh pressed rosin, right? right. Um, that's super expensive. Um, you, you can, you're limited to hundred gram batches. That's not feasible when you're trying to roll out a clean product to everybody, um, you know, so 
Um, but me, probably distillate, you know, uh, it was an extraction. Um, but, you know, for me, I'm a, a, I love my flower. Sure, uh, sure. You know, that, that's my favorite thing. Okay. Hey, you know, now, now I have been in, and this is now for 20 years, I have been a key smoker. Mm-hmm. I literally tried to, I, I started turning away from flower in 2001 and literally was looking for keef and trying to get real keef, not just scrapings, mm-hmm. but real keef. And honestly, mixing those sometimes, you know, I would get a key from one particular strain and a key from another strain and trying to see if I could, you know, back then, 2001, two, three, and four, you know, though, you know, CBD was just being, you know, discussed. I was trying to find a higher CBD concentrate or, or, or uh, CBD level in the keef that I was getting. And then I would mix that keef in with something with a little bit higher THC so I could finally find that little thing, you know. And then for me, it was just trying to find that sweet spot, you know, mm-hmm. and I'd find it. Um, what do you think about keef? I love Keith. I mean, it just, it's, it's all the different consumption methods. And I think, you know, much like most drugs and, and anything, it's all, everyone has their own consumption method that works for them. Sure. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of edibles. Uh, you right. know, it doesn't work for me. Uh, right. I just fall asleep and it, it, right. it's not a medicine or, you know, I'm not really functional at that level. Right. Um, you know, where, um, you know, if it was a daytime, you know, it's, it's maybe a, a, a pen, uh, right. sort of situation where then at nighttime it would be the flower. So it all, it all really just depends on those situations. Right. Um, you know, and for me, it's the, some of the higher concentration, like, uh, the dabs and those situations is something I, um, you know, that's, that's not for me, right. uh, sort of situation, but you know, it, it very much is dependent on the user and, and that's the same for all drugs. It's, you start on a regular drug medicine, well, let's increase your dose, decrease it until they find that sweet spot. And that's what I, th- I think everyone needs to do uh, when they're first experimenting with cannabis. Mm-hmm. You know, not just roll one method out. Okay, let me try a couple. Okay, this works for me. Sure, sure. You know? And now, you know, when it comes to just flour by itself, is the testing methods different for just testing flour than testing a distillate or distillate? Yes, they all have different, uh, you know, methods and extraction profiles for mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, being distillate, it's way more concentrated. So number one, you're not going to use as much sample, um, you know, and then also if you think about homogeneity, you thought about someone testing a batch from here, uh, we're working out mapping plans and statistical analysis to make sure that we are randomly sampling from a field so that it is going to be the right result towards the end. When you talk about the average, right? Cause I mean, if you put 50 plants in a square room, the one in the right corner is going to be different than the one in the left corner. Yeah, give me this little nug from like right, right up there. It's it's going to be right. totally different from and from the top of the plant yeah. to the bottom of the plant. And that's what it is. Even the genetics change in the plant right. uh, over time from the bottom to the top. Yeah, a lot of um, people don't know that. Don't aware of that. Now you know, let's let's back up a little bit and talk about broad spectrum. There, you know, and I I've been you know not critical of, but I've had a conversation with Dr. Gupta, who I think you know in some ways we should should salute for having turned this industry into something that is being discussed at the every person level Mm -hmm. by a special, but he also basically misled the public. He misled the public by saying that I found this one chemical called CBD. That's the end to all. When we know that CBD isn't the end to all, Mm -hmm. we now recognize very quickly that, you know, there are so many other, again, that we let's go with 160 plus because that's literally the number that I've heard from most scientists 
around the world that we've identified now around 160 cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids. And if we go with that number, we know that the original, you know, the godfather of cannabis, Dr. Mashulam, stated unequivocally that no matter what we do in research, we're going to find out that it is an entourage effect mm-hmm. that actually is the most viable effect from this plant. And that's mixing all those cannabinoids together, though we may find out down the road that some of them are not as important as others, but you still want to have them there because we don't understand their interaction with the other cannabinoid. I right? totally agree with you. So, so what do you think about this? We just now, you know, we've discovered and in within the last three weeks, there's all this research out there about the fact that they've now discovered, you know, a new THC, THCP and a CBDP. Mm-hmm. And we've also discovered, you know, the fact that there is now a phytocannabinoid that uh, may have some really, really, really powerful effect when it comes to things like pancreatic cancer and also permeation of cancer cell walls. So I it, that that kind of brings me back to the idea that, you know, the idea of using the full plant or using the leaf or using the keef is probably more important than going after just the distillate that's only isolating one or two cannabinoids. I totally agree with you on that one. So um, I think even the government had uh, an understanding of this and then the regulatory pathway with the challenges. So in 2016, uh, the FDA actually released botanical based drug guidelines, which loosens up the ability for you to actually go through a pathway very, very easier with plant based extracts. So you can account for these variations in this chemistry. So you can show that your product, when grown the same through a traceable system, will actually prove as drugs um you know and i think we are now at an at a, at a point to actually be able to uh, cultivate in the right way and, and show the right consistent products that'll you know show it i think i mean the consistent manufacturing product where if you were to take these products and go through a trial and actually see this you 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 will see the same results between those studies mm-hmm. i think you know previously when you talk about the research you've done say in california and whatnot the controls in manufacturing haven't been in place that the variations from the science research uh, would vary because the product would vary so much. Okay. Um, you know, so I think now you really do see the the big manufacturers that are, um, you know, making these quality, you know, mixed cannabinoid ratios or full spectrum products and actually being able to, sh- uh, you know, now um, study them in a way, mm-hmm. you know, um, does that make sense? Or it does. I mean, it's like, like for me, I, I, you know, I have a product that's in the marketplace that I put out that's, uh, you know, when I, I was one of the very first, I think in this entire country to literally take distillate and go back and reformulate. So mm-hmm. I was taking THC, CBD, and then using a terpene profile that would literally include a lot of the other minor cannabinoids at very, 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 very small levels, but making sure that they were present so that, you know, I mean, I, I have a product in the marketplace that uh, was, you know, I'll give you one example is, is 25% THC and, uh, well, sorry, 10% THC and 90% CBD, but it really wasn't. That's by volume. It was, you know, 10% THC, about 82% 
CBD. And about that other 8% was a mixture of all the of terpenes and other cannabinoids. And I was specifically picking terpenes that have already been investigated in the food industry as having some form of medicinal effect and adding those in to see if I could elicit a response. And, you know, um, almost to the letter, I was eliciting a response, at least hearing back feedback from customers saying that, you know, this literally did exactly what I said it was going to do. And I'm really, you know, blown away by the fact that it's like right now, what, in the last four years ago, I was I was literally stolen to one of my manufacturers, my manufacturing partner saying, we should really literally look at CBG, starting to add a, you know, most CBG, in plant, most people don't know that, that CBG in the first six weeks of the plant is probably the most prevalent cannabinoid. Then it starts to turn into THC and CBD. I said, you know, if you look at it from a stem cell standpoint, if we increased you know, when, when the fully grown plant, it goes from, you know, like 90% or like 80% down to, you know, somewhere like 002%, right? So what if we increased it to like 1%? What would it affect have on the THC and the CBD that we actually have in the, in the product, in the mixture? And I started dabbling with that and literally noticed a noticeable effect in you know, not just my high, but noticeable effect in how I felt after using the product. And I don't see a lot of that happening right now. A lot of people are going, well, I want to have a broad spectrum, meaning that I'll go and have a test done to show that everything's present, but they're not messing around with the individual cannabinoids trying to increase that percentage. You know, I I love that you actually say that. I think that's the issue in um, the... um what was that word that you said? Or misinfor- misinformation that's going mm-hmm. going on. Um, you know, I think you have uh, people that are in it for the wrong reasons. Um, you know, maybe not the wrong reasons, but right. trying to make products, but don't really understand that standardize their manufacturing process is, is really what it's all about. Because if you're creating a product and you want a unique user experience to be consistent, everything has to be the same over the time. People are buying broad spectrum CBD from here, from here, from here, different farms, different genetics, different terpene profiles. Mm -hmm. And now they're never going to have the same product. So you're not really going to create customer loyalty or the same user experience. So you're actually doing a little bit of a disservice for what I think a lot of this movement has gone for in the sense of, you know, trying to actually understand these things and and actually move it in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the fact that you actually make that product, you know, because that's, that's the first step for us to actually understand these things is is those entourage effects and these ratios. And if you look at Ethan Russo's paper, mm-hmm. uh, the you know the godfather of that entourage sure. effect, you know you you go from ratios here, you'll have more of an effect here, less of an effect right. down here, and, and more of an effect. So there's no real number one to one ratio that people really understand. And right. once you add ten compounds, how do you? Now, that's a big math equation. That's, that's a big math scope, equation. Absolutely. You know? um, and and now I think we just need the data, you know, the right people with the right data with uh, not a not an interest, a, a good interest in actually understanding it. Sure. I mean, I think it's just I think maybe we start off by being consistent in the formulation and then try to test for the effect. I know that sounds a little crazy, but, you know, if I can say that I can guarantee you that this particular pen that I have has a oil in it that has consistently every batch has this actual profile that at least lets the consumer know, well, every time I grab that particular pen, I should have that same effect from what I've just consumed rather than grab this pen, go back and get another cart. Now that cart's 
10% off. And did I really have the same effect? I don't know if I had the same effect attitude, right? Yeah, and that's exactly what, what, what the issues I think have been in the industry. I think now you you make that right effect. And when you we talk about the government trying to stop making you through drugs, mm -hmm. the biggest disqualification for I see everybody in the market is hitting the mark of good good manufacturing in the sense it's the same product every time going into those trials mm -hmm. you know and now that people actually have hit that benchmark people have been able to set up the manufacturing facilities to do that you know we're really at that cusp for um, that next level of product integrity and consumer understanding of products and really that's going to drive in customer loyalty right um you know you getting sticky icky to i don't know some of the other crazy names you've heard yeah. out there it's, yeah. it's not about that it's about a good quality brand where you look at the back and it's this 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 okay Correct. next time i go up it's this 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 and it doesn't change right. within to a as within a statistical relative degree, because there's always error, uh, like sure. I said, but, you know, relatively the same product. And that's going to that's going to require, you know, us taking a little bit of a break here from just extracting and trying to extract what we call broad spectrum, but actually extracting to each component, 160 different cannabinoids, extract them each individually and then go back and reformulate them so that you have them at the exact level every single time. That's exactly what it is. So I've, it's it's really um, interesting that you said that because you see a lot of um, the good manufacturers with the right team, they're starting to do that. So they're kind of post-extraction, actually purifying them, out, purifying them out and then giving you a consistent 5% CBG, 5% CBZ, 5% that. Because if you mm -hmm. think about your extract, by the time you dilute it down to a tincture, can you measure it or not? Right. Um, you know, at 0.3%, it's almost non-detectable. Right. And I'm always in arguments with people that I swear that this is in there, but you know, it, it's diluted <laughs> out at that point. Sure. Um, you know, and then that's almost misinforming the clients by saying broad spectrum, because it's not the same product between batch and lot and lot batch and right. lot to lot variability. Wow. So where, where do you think, where do you think the industry is headed right now? Um, it's funny that you say it because I, I have kind of two twofold decision. I, I really want, I really am there for clean, consistent access. Uh, like we, we started the conversation with, with, um, you know, the plants relatively unharmful, right? So it's, it's why are we not releasing the plant to everybody in that direction and regulating the safety testing for pesticides in those right. situations. Um, but then I, mean, I think that that's, that's one of the areas that has to be one of the, the starters is the fact that we literally are making sure that it doesn't contain contaminants that are harmful. Mm -hmm. And that's really the starting point. So once, once you have the plant there and then you can drive in the manufacturing of all these random products, it's not about developing a hundred different, what do they call them? SKUs, right? Different right. product lines. Sure. Um, it's about really driving in one good product and then, then expanding it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it's, I think you had a really crazy year last year from what I saw, everyone trying to generate and start a company around CBD and not really drive in what they were trying to make. Correct. Um, they just want to be first, first to do a, a toe fungus bomb. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. It is. It's the weirdest things I've right. ever seen. I mean, I blushed at some of the things that I've seen, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's the next step is really people dialing in their manufacturing not getting caught up in, you know, just trying to push product out the door and really dialing in their process, um, you know, and then at that point you can start evaluating your product and, you know, taking it to the next level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the consumers deserve more uh, from what it used to be. And, and, you know, and I think we're in that right direction. Um, you know, I see the right, you know, some of the top scientists, the highest uh, 
uh, the highest cited auditor from American Chemical Society. You know, they're in the, this scape now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you see the right people in it for the right reasons. And, um, you know, like you that, mm. you know, had your passion from your background, me, which is why, you know, it's meant a lot to me and got me through, you know, and, you know, that, that, that's really where I think the market's headed. And we well, now what about how do we, how do we bridge this gap in this, this competitive state to state angst? You know, because, you know, one state wants to do something, they say, I'm doing it better than that state. And another state wants to do something, I'm doing it better than that state. And they really aren't doing it better than themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's the issue. It's, um, you know, it comes down to funding. Right. So the government needs the money to set up people in there. Um, they need the right experts. Um, I don't think the right um, the, the people that would tend to go into government are the people that would uh, are, are typically from the cannabis industry to understand those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then it's also rolling out a program that's viable for your market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in Michigan, for instance, you had a caregiver situation, much like um, California. But how do you change a market within weeks? Right. You know, how do you how do you roll that situation out when there's been a lot of bad practices and no uh, real foundation and knowledge and how to cultivate these things? Um, I, I, have you have you seen the Fresh Toast article that's out about the the discovery of the THCP? I did. Is that the Nature article? Yes. Yeah, the article talks about the fact that and a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, this uh, cannabinoid was discovered at a military laboratory. A military laboratory looking at cannabinoids to see if they could weaponize them. And a conversation, this is a conversation that's been held since almost back in the 50s and the 60s. Where, you know, the governments can't look at something and just say it's okay to have, you know, a product. Let's figure out if we could turn it into a weapon that, you know, we could hurt people with. And that's that's really interesting. Well, I think, you know, I think um, from an industry, from a science science standpoint, I think you put a lot of the regulated systems on those military bases for research, which is why it was a controlled substance in those situations um, where I, I don't think I think it's how do you how do you start studying it from a framework that didn't allow anybody to to study it. And I think that's probably why I went through that university mm-hmm. uh, from a natural products chemist, because that's that's really ultimately who who discovered that, um, you know, these are in, in minuscule quantities. So you're, you're talking about huge extracts and then, um, you know, you're getting a milligram per maybe kilogram of extract, right. you know, so it's you're talking about trace, but it allows us to figure out the same um, structure and, and what that actual compound looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and why I say that oh. is when we talk about cannabinoids, they're kind of a core framework, um, you know, as far as its chemistry. And there's only slight, subtle changes. So mm-hmm. when I talk about 160, you might just have an alcohol group here, an alcohol group there. Um, but, you know, once you know that structure and, and what would traditionally happen in regular farmer, you take that structure and then you'd either synthesize it um, and then you'd run it through a, a farmer, farmer type pathway. Right. Um, you know, so I think the government has controlled the research. And um, but keep in mind when we talk about, hey, it's 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 good for anti cancer. A lot of times the data gets misconstrued as it's on a, a cell assay. You know, right. so you haven't you haven't given it to someone else um, and 
and not evaluated to, to kill someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how drugs normally get formed. Unfortunately, as an industry here, we already know it's not killing people. Right. And then how do you make something and put it th- through that pathway now? It's kind of the cart before the horse. What is it? The You know what I'm yeah, saying? Car before, yeah. yeah, car sure. before the horse situation. Right. So, um, you know, I think you also have universities opening up um, to actually, I mean, my university, uh, they weren't very happy about uh, what I wanted to get into when I was getting my PhD, but right. uh, now they are open to it. Sure. Um, so it's, it's you know. Um, yeah, finally, uh, you know, universities are starting to actually teach information to doctors about the fact that, you know, we have an a endocannabinoid system. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've just started doing that now. This is 2020 and this is just now happening. Yeah, And, and we've known about the endocannabinoid systems for now 17 years. Yeah, and now you like link all this other research. It's like fish oil, arachidonic acid, one of sure. the main components in fish oil that interacts with your endocannabinoid system. You know, right. so that's really what they link to some of the most beneficial um, components of that. Um, and now fish oil is actually FDA approved for a drug um, right. for anti heart attack. So it's all right. linking to understanding how um, you can't compete with nature. Um, you know, just in natural synthetic. Hold methods. on one second. Got that airplane going over again. But, you know, you're right. We're finally hitting a spot where we're starting to validate the research that's being done, but only doling it out as our government sees felt, I guess, is what I want to say, which, Mm -hmm. which, you know, brings me back to, you know, and I know a lot of people listen to my conversation now for the last hour wondering, okay, so Montel, all right, you guys are talking about, you know, Research and research and research and research. But again, this is a product that's been around for 5,000 years and has done no harm except for, you know, in one person who we now know consumed a product that was was poorly stored, grown and manipulated to actually cause that black mold. Yeah. Because nine times out of 10, you know, cannabis doesn't normally form black mold, right? Actually, and uh, I believe I might be wrong in these statements, but I'm... I'm uh but I believe it was Virginia Tech actually in the 70s inoculated cannabis with uh, Aspergillus niger, um, a seed sample um, from the police department, and it didn't grow during incubation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it's obviously introduced from uh, cultivation facility issues, um, where then it's spreading on the actual product post mm-hmm. post growing sort of situation. Okay. Wow. So, wow. Um, so, so for the consumer out there, I mean, okay, are we, are we, can we? look at this and think, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that eventually, you know, techniques like what you do at the Green Scientific will probably finally start rolling across the country. That's what it is. You see the, how do you, how do you roll it out? How do you set the infrastructure? You have the right teams in there. Um, You have the right, um, I really think it's the scientists in there that, you know, truly care. Uh, If you care about your job and and you like it, you don't have to work a day in your life. But um, at the other side, it's actually helping create a movement and a knowledge base for other people to get educated and, you know, do things right. Um, You know, people were everyone, you know, why would you be getting into it when I was first doing it? But um, now they see the passion. They see see what the movement's moving forward. You have, you know, great people like Switha Qual, you know, out there that, you know, gave up their pharma, their sweet pharma lifestyle to, you know, join this movement. So, are you are you were you as shocked as I was I, when you heard that Arizona, which has had a robust medical program for years now, never required testing? 
Um, so this is the issue that I think you have in different states. So, mm-hmm. um, if you have a good manufacturing process and the right documented batch records and your own internal testing program that you have a right independent unit that's checking, uh, your systems, um, you can prevent those products from having those contaminants. So I'm, I'm okay with that. However, what you have is a lot of, uh, companies that are just trying to push the product out the door. So if it's not meeting the requirements, you know, uh, there's ways to get around it. Right. So as like any company sets up, um, you know, it's it's about setting up those policies and procedures to get that way. And the infrastructure just wasn't there. Um, but as, as you see people die in those situations, that that's when these rules are going to come out. Um, the states understand it. Um, these testing requirements are actually minimal uh, when you compare to normal food and agricultural testing. So mm-hmm. um, I actually, when everyone says, I've heard, um, you know, these are the ho- highest level of testing standards. It's not even food and supplements from other lab owners. And it's just, I, I laugh because that's just not how it goes. <laughs> um, you know, it's just naive people come into the market that want to set up a lab, but they're not looking about stability testing programs how do you know that your chocolate still has thc for six months after you manufactured it right you know if when you shipped it in antarctica and it froze to minus 40 that it's still stable after that point you know or you went to the sahara i'm giving extreme scenarios sure. but it, it melted is, is did the cbd disappear um right. you know and that that's really the next level of manufacturing um you know so yeah it's it's, it's interesting and um you know i think if someone gets hurt and you get caught with these things in the future, these are now, from a CBD perspective, that's federally liable. You know, mm-hmm. you can actually go to court. You can be held for fraud. Right. Uh, you know, that hasn't been there before. Right. Um, so that's kind of convoluted in the testing standard standpoint, but it's all about um, how do states give people access uh, quickly and then kind of pull back and start implementing the rules. Got it. And um, why I say that is I think Michigan did an excellent job in that standpoint of giving caregivers access. Um, but now if you look what's going on now, they're really pushing out the caregivers um, in the sense of letting big manufacturers that are held accountable um, distribute the products to the market. Got it. Um, Got it. But then it also squeezes access to the consumers during these transitions. So, sure. Um, you know, how do you get access? without an infrastructure at place. And but then then a problem also becomes then you know the more and more regulation the stronger and stronger the black market. That's, That's what we've seen in California right now. I mean the black market is really booming. I think that there's there's estimates that you know the consumption of of state you know, sanctioned products is probably around 30 to 35 percent, 75 or 65 to 75 percent of the product in the marketplace right now in California, which is the state that's been leading this charge is now back in the black market hands. Which yeah. Is crazy. But I think it's I think we got to understand what the legal market was in California. And, you know, I, I really look at the legal market in California. It's only existed for two years. Right. You know, it's just licensing before it was I go to my doctor, I get my medical card. I can grow up to a set limit of plants based on the caregiver. I can grow more and more plants. So the mm-hmm. government didn't have any oversight as far as regulating these companies. Um, you know, California is really now got a government task force where they already have their hands um, full by just trying to get all these manufacturers that are trying to get compliant, let them get compliant. Mm -hmm. You know, if you tried to register with the government, you're trying to do it right. Right. Um, You know, so now it comes down to all the funding went towards getting these people licensed up and running in these dispensaries. But now you need funding to push these guys out. Um, You know, and it's not about 
your Joe Schmo, uh, you know, growing three plants for him and his two boys. Um, it's really about distributing, you know, pesticide laden um, crops because, you know, PBO and other accelerants, you know, will help you get bigger yield. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not what it's about. Right. Um, you know, so there's really only been a couple of years of regulated testing, you know, and if you look at the other states like Massachusetts and um, other ones that set up a real regulatory framework with testing and, and, and four things rolled out, right. um, there's not a lot of companies that exist in those markets where California, there's tons, you know, right. and now it's been squeezed out and out and out because it's people getting compliant. Um, and the ones that do well have really invested in people from food and agricultural and, you know, regular manufacturing techniques to, you know, really create a good, consistent product. Got it. Um, well, I'll tell you, Dr. Andrew Hall has been with us here for this last hour. He's scientific, uh, the chief scientific officer for Green Scientific Laboratories. You're going to hear about him because I'm guaranteeing that over the course of the next couple of years, you will be helping to set the standard across the country. And I, I really applaud you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you for having me today. Anything we can do, I can do to help you out or let me know for sure. Because I'd love to be involved. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Well, you know, thanks so much for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And make sure you tune in to the next edition. Let's Be Blunt. Dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday. Podcasts.